there is a hustle and bustle. As students jet off to classes at York University's Kiel campus, a sprawling post-secondary education institution in the northwest corner of Toronto, bordering on York Region. The campus is dotted with mostly low-rise modern buildings that house lecture theatres and classrooms. Scattered amongst the grey concrete structures are student apartment-style residences, but nothing in the way of traditional turn-of-the-century university campus buildings covered in ivy. It is mostly a commuter-fed university. Busy bus routes weave in and out, and most recently, the subway. The fast-growing student population of more than 53,000 today traversed the grounds using its crisscrossing roads and pathways that meander through campus. But back in the year 2000, the women on campus were terrified. Police now say the York U rapist is responsible for eight sex attacks on campus since July 21st. The level of violence has escalated with each assault. A man had been stalking and sexually assaulting female students, and they were frightened. He would strike at all hours, sometimes during the day, other times in the evening. Attacks that quickly escalated from groping to sexual assault with a weapon. I'm scared. It's scary to, to go to school. School's supposed to be a safe place. It's a bit scary and it's a bit um, alarming that it's happening on campus. What was described then as a serial sexual predator had been hiding in the shadows of the campus pathways and his sexual assaults were becoming more and more violent. It is on one of those pathways that I meet up with CP24 Steve Ryan, who 20 years ago was a sex crimes investigator with Toronto Police and called to York University to find a rapist who had attacked a 22-year-old woman. So Steve, here we are in a, a southeast corner of the university, a pathway that goes underneath some hydro lines. And this is where this woman is walking. Yeah, that's right. The scene itself has changed dramatically since 2000, but uh, what we're looking at here is very similar to what it looked like for her as she was walking south on the pathway about 9 o'clock at night, end of September 2000. It's dark. It's very dark. And uh, out of the bushes pops this guy who automatically produces this very large knife and he drags her into the woods. The student had just parked her car and was walking along the path, but now she had a 10-inch knife at her throat, her assailant threatening to kill her if she does not follow him into the bushes that sit between the hydro field and a road. He drags her over into the trees, um, de demands her pin, car pin number and her ATM card, and then he rapes her at knife point. The rapist was not in the bushes a long time, but for the woman, the longest few minutes of her young life. She was so, just such an animal that he just took off one pant leg, did what he needed to do, and then left with her uh, 
pin card and her eight, eight, sorry, her pin number and her ATM card and left her there in the trees. Taking her ATM card would prove to be a mistake for the attacker, now the focus of a police manhunt. He had to be stopped. Police swarmed the campus and surrounding neighborhood. The victim had given the 911 operator a good description. He was wearing a very unique jacket, but he slipped away under darkness, not before leaving a clue to his identity. It's now just a question of watching and waiting. Toronto police say they're confident they'll make an arrest shortly in the case of a sexual predator who's assaulted seven women at York University since mid-July. On this day, we take a short drive off campus, a stone's throw from the crime scene. This is where investigators get the break they need. So Steve, this, uh, this gas station is like two-minute walk, really, two-minute run from where the rape happened. Yeah, that's right. It's not too far from where the uh, assault happened at all. So this was a key piece of evidence for us. So what we uh, know or what we found out was that he came right to this gas station using the uh, survivor's ATM card with her PIN number and he made several attempts to get money out of her account. Here's the break in the case. Police say shortly after Friday's attack, a man entered this petrocan at Finch and Sentinel Road. Then police say the man withdrew some money from this automatic teller using the victim's credit card. And that's when police got him on a surveillance camera. This is definitely a significant lead and we believe that uh, this is a piece of the puzzle that is uh, very important in terms of breaking this case and the investigators are asking anyone that may know the identity of this man to contact them at the sexual assault squad or Crime Stoppers. So little did he know there's a security camera in there and he's punching in a tracking device basically for, for him. That's exactly what he did. So as uh, 31 Division was canvassing all the potential places where you could use an ATM card, I contacted the survivor's bank because during my interview I asked her, of course, what bank she uh, banked with and then I got a hold of the security from that bank and they confirmed for me within a short while that the card was actually used at this ATM machine. So of course, this becomes a crime scene. The ATM machine is printed, and the video surveillance is seized, and then it's reviewed by investigators to see if there's anything on the videotape. And in this case, there was very good coverage of who I believed was a suspect at the time because he matched the description that the survivor had given to me with regards to what he was wearing, how he looked, and he had her card. He was using her ATM card, so that could be you know, a big clue for any detective. The sexual assault squad has received numerous tips and phone calls from people who think they might know the man identified in the security video police released yesterday. The video was obtained after the man used his latest victim's debit card at an automatic teller. This video, uh, you guys put that out right away. It was all over our newscast. And how does that help? It's a tremendous uh, piece of, uh, it's a tremendous source, I should say, of extending your investigative team because the media are the ones that get the message out there and then everybody in this community now becomes a cop with eyes. Everybody's got eyes and everybody is able to pick up the phone and call our hotline with the help of the media getting this guy's picture out there. More so than his picture, he was wearing a, a, a jacket that had distinct markings on it and 
if you knew somebody who owned that coat, you certainly would take notice of it. So that went out as well. And then we had the, the uh, hotline set up and then the call started to come. Fear had now gripped the York campus. It's kind of scary, but I guess if you stay in large groups. We don't stay late at night to study and stuff. We always make sure we have like a bunch of people to go to the parking lot. Police efforts to catch the rapist intensified as the school community worried he would soon strike again. Flyers have been posted at York warning of the danger. The wanted man is white, 18 to 22 years, average build, dirty blonde hair, an earring in his left ear, wearing dark pants, a light blue t-shirt, a red baseball cap and a black and white soccer jacket with the word Kappa on the sleeves. The suspect rides a mountain bike. When you have a piece of this uh, information like that, a piece of video, a picture of your suspect, do you go straight to the media or do you try and find him yourself at first? Oh, you never try to find him yourself at first because public safety is always first and foremost. So if you have a picture of somebody, you need to get that out there. But you can't just put out a picture of a shadow and then the next day put out a picture of a shadow with a nose. In other words, you've got to make that picture as good as you can. You need to make it uh, so people have an appetite for it, so they can see it and actually study it and go, I might know that person. So we had to enhance the video just a little bit, but it's done ASAP because you want that video out in the public right away to protect other people and to say, hey, if you know this guy, give us a call. And in this day and age with the HD TV, you know, Stuff's pretty good. It's not like the old days, that blurry black and white stuff we'd see in the, in the 80s. Oh, his picture was, his pictures was pretty darn good. But they did not have their suspect in custody. Someone had to recognize the man. Investigators desperately needed a name. Police and security officers at York are now on full alert, trying to make sure he doesn't strike again. York has nearly 200 security officers patrolling the grounds, and it's increased its express van service to escort women around campus. It's also using about 40 closed-circuit security cameras to keep an eye on things. For their part, Toronto police have a full-time task force dedicated to the investigation. The task force was now flooded with tips. Names were coming in fast and furious. Investigators were sorting through them, prioritizing then fanning out all over the city. So what happens, you get a call? So we get a call. So the task force is set up at 31 Division. I'm in charge of that task force and how it works is it's like a triangle. I'm the person on top. I've got a, what's called a file coordinator who is the one that takes all the information, records it all, puts it all into a data entry and gives it to me. I review it and then I give it to the detectives to go out and track down these leads. The reason why that's done was because the system is set up if two witnesses report a white car with a, a yellow tire on it, the computer will pick that up and it will say to the file coordinator, two people have seen white car with a yellow tire. It's a silly example, but you get my point. So those tips would come in. Then a tip came to me saying that uh, this guy by the name of Philip Foremsky went to high school right across the street from 31 Division. and fled to uh, Hamilton because he was the guy that uh, committed the uh, sexual assaults and the robbery. This is somebody, uh, a neighbor or somebody? Or the, a we don't know. It was an anonymous call. We never did learn who it was. The detective has a picture of a suspect. His DNA found on the victim. 
and all he needed was a call to the hotline to put a name to the picture and to get a DNA match. It was starting to come together, we just needed a name and that's why the media was so helpful because they put that picture out constantly, they put that jacket out constantly and it caused a ton of calls to come in and we tracked every one of them down. And how many times did his name come up? Once, just one time. So, so other people's names are coming up as well? That's right. That's right. People are calling in to say, I recognize that guy, it's my neighbor, my, my son's friend's brother had that jacket. Even if it was 10 years ago, you've got to go, go clear every tip. So we get a call in the afternoon saying, Philip Ferensky says he did it, and he's in uh, Hamilton. Now we got to find Philip Ferensky. The task force gets a key call. Someone telling police they have knowledge that a man by the name of Philip Ferensky is their suspect. Ryan says just like every tip coming into the hotline, they check it out. Now that seems a bit odd to me because you've got an anonymous caller calling in saying this guy did it. He has inside knowledge that he did it. Perhaps, perhaps that comes from um, somebody telling somebody because a secret's hard to keep. When you come in an offense like that, you're going to tell somebody eventually. I guarantee you. But the big part about having DNA is that anonymous people, they're all good. They're not witnesses. They're just saying, go look at Joe Schmo. Cops go look for Joe Schmo. They use investigative techniques either through consent or other ways to get DNA. And then either you clear that guy or he's your suspect. And that's what we were dealing with in this case. How'd you find him? He's in Hamilton? He was in Hamilton. So through police checks, police records, talking to different people, we were able to uh, locate his address, with, which was not too far from here, which didn't surprise me. And a phone call was made by officers from 31 Division on my behalf. And uh, he came into 31 Division with his mom and consented to a DNA uh, buckle swab, which is basically just a Q-tip that you yourself rub inside your cheeks. It goes into a tube, it gets sealed and sent off to the Center of Forensic Sciences. But before you give that swab, you are informed, well informed, of what the swab is for. It was for a sexual assault. It could only be used for that sexual assault. And there's the door. You don't, are not required to give it. We take a drive to the division just off Finch Avenue, close to the busy 400 highway, not far from the university. It is here that Ryan had set up an office along with members of his task force. So you call him to 31, right? So he's asked to come into 31 division. Like every other person whose name surfaces through the tip line, through anonymous tips, through emails, whatever the case may be, as soon as a name is given, we ask them to come in here and if they agree, they get a, a, consensual, a consensual buckle swab, and then that's compared to the uh, sexual assault uh, survivor. For now, Ferensky is just one name out of hundreds of tips flooding into police. They have to clear each name. He is not a suspect at this point, just a person of interest because some anonymous caller has claimed he knows Ferensky is the rapist. So you're calling this guy in, but he's one of a number of people you're calling in to eliminate. So what's his demeanor like and, and what's your contact with him or is this a job for a, more of a beat cop? Good question. So when you've done the job as long as I've, I've done it and you run projects where you're just looking for a name, you often get 
people who swear up and down that they know who did it, you often get false confessions. So when I saw that tip saying that Philip Fremsky confessed to this, I was interested in it, but I wasn't because I've seen it a million times. So we had um, officers working for us who, whose job it was to get those consensual buckle swabs. And Fremsky came in to this police station with his mom. And uh, after going through all of the legal jargon with regards to his rights and not having to give a consensual swab, and these are the potential charges, he gave the swab. And that's not surprising, is it? It's not surprising, Austin. It's not surprising because a lot of times when th this type of criminal is cornered, all they're worried about is self-preservation. And what can I say today to get me out of this jam? And I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And then tomorrow, I'll worry about the next day. And it's a constant looking over your shoulder, thinking of what your next step is. But he felt cornered, in my view. And that's why he gave us the uh, consent swap. So he's talking to another police officer in one of your interrogation rooms. Your contact with him is rather brief, isn't it? You, you, come, you come down and have a quick look, say hello, and then what happens? Yeah, that's right. So what happens is the buckle swabs are taken in a little small private room. It, I wouldn't call it an interrogation room. It's just, it's just an empty room where they would sign the consent after, being, after having it read to them. The swab is taken, which again, is just a toothpick rubbed inside the cheek, goes inside of a tube, then it's sealed with continuity. An officer takes that to the Center of Forensic Sciences. That person leaves, and then we go about tracking down the other 150 names um, that are, are being told to us. So th in this particular case, the officers came to me and said, we finished with Fremsky. He's downstairs with his mom. I thought, why not go down and, and let's see what he has to say. So you open the door, and you've seen a picture of your wanted suspect from the gas station. What do you see there? Uh, I was pretty much uh, convinced it was uh, the same guy. This is the break Ryan has been waiting for. He now has not just a person of interest in front of him, but a suspect in the brutal rape of that 22-year-old York student, and possibly the man wanted for several assaults on the university campus. And he has just given police his DNA. And while DNA analysis takes time, it never lies. So he agreed to an interview, and I began to interview him uh, with his mom present. And his mom said to me, and I'll never forget this, I'm paraphrasing of course, whoever this person is needs to be caught, they're dangerous, and I worry about the students at the university. My heart basically aches for them. So she said that. And she's talking about the sexual assaults. She's that, talking that, that about... Every, everybody's talking about because it's all over the news. That's right. So when, when she came in here with her son, her son would have been made aware right away that there was a sexual assault investigation and that we're using uh, this consent swap to get DNA from all the suspects to compare it to the sexual assault. Also, she knew all about the uh, sexual assault. And that's why I think he confessed right there and then to robbery after being interviewed by me. So he basically says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing again, I didn't rape her, but I committed the robbery. And I, to this day, believe that he admitted to that robbery because he damn well knew that he was caught on video surveillance using her ATM card. Ryan now needs to interview Fremsky alone, so he escorts his mother out of the room and into the lobby of 31 Division Police Station. Mom left the, uh, the room. I had mom leave the room because now I was going to arrest him for a robbery. And we were actually in this spot. I know this police station has changed a lot but this lobby was the same. And we were almost in this exact spot when she said to me, 
I knew it was him on the video surveillance. Now, she's not talking about the sex assault. She's talking about the ATM at the gas station. I knew it was him. She's seen it on the news. She saw it on the news. And what'd she do about it? Nothing. And great question again. And I say that because is it morally corrupt to not say something about your own kid? Perhaps. But I've, I've debated this myself over and over again. And if that was my son and I was a cop, I'd like to think that I would grab him and drag him into a police station. But to be honest with you, I don't know. So no judgment on mom. She did what she felt she needed to do, but she knew. And moms know, right? Moms know. She knew that that was him. So after talking with her, then I went back to Fremsky again, and now we're going to have a second interview. The detective has Fremsky on armed robbery, but he needs to get him on the sexual assault of the 22-year-old student. Investigators have just swabbed him for a DNA sample, but the result from that is days away. He needs Fremsky to talk now. Second interview, I show him the um, surveillance photos, and I tell him, there's no doubt that's you. Not one doubt. I need to know why you did this. But he's already admitting that he's the guy in the gas station using the, the ATM, right? That's right. So this right. is lead up. This yeah. is lead up to the, to the questions about the sex assault. So show him the pictures. That's you. That's you taking money out of this woman's account. You got her card because you sexually assaulted her. And I know that. And I need to know why. And he confessed. He confessed. It wasn't that simple, mind you. I mean, I'm making it sound a lot more easy than it is. But it was after my interview with him that I got him to confess to uh, sexually assaulting her. Let's talk, let's talk about that then, the, the confession, because in, a lot of us go from TV movies. So you're talking to him, you're accusing him, I get the picture, this is you, this is you, this is you. How long does this go on for before he finally goes, okay, you got me? About, uh, I would say, f 45 minutes. It kept, and his demeanor changed. It, w it started with, how many times do I, really kind of obnoxious, how many times do I have to tell you I robbed her. I didn't rape her, basically were his words. So I just keep talking. Yes, you did. I know you did. I know there's no doubt in my mind. You're there at the ATM machine. It's just down the street from where this happened. And he says, fine, this is what I did. And he gave me all the details as to what he did to that uh, woman. And the knife, I told you about the knife. All the, yeah, all the horrible details. He, he spoke about the knife. He spoke about waiting in the bushes for a uh, lengthy period of time. And that's not uncommon for sexual predators because they wait for the, what they perceive as the perfect victim. And uh, he said uh, he threatened to kill her, basically. He had a big knife on him. He didn't tell me it was 10 inches, but uh, he said he had a large knife on him. And he robbed her, went to the ATM, a rapist has boldly attacked at least seven women on or near campus in broad daylight since mid-July. A dangerous man who has been haunting the women on the campus, now in police custody, and confessing to the horrific crime. But a confession is not always enough. Police need all the evidence they can find. And I asked him, where did the knife go? And where did the clothing that was, he had on the video? And again, he's cornered. Now he's just confessed to sexual assault but 
he doesn't want to give details as to evidence. He doesn't want that. So he told me that he got rid of the clothing and he dumped a knife in a sewer near York Woods uh, Library, not realizing that as a, a homicide or a sexual assault detective, either or, you're going to go into that sewer and you're going to drain every bit of water out of that looking for that knife that he claims to be in there. We walk out of the police division and head to the parking lot, retracing the steps of this investigation. Steve, he tells you where the knife is. What's your next move? My next move to, is to get him into a police car and have him drive us to where he says he dumped the knife and uh, we set that up and off we went. Oh great, let's go there. It is damp and dreary outside. It has been drizzling on and off all day. As we step into the car, Ryan turns on the ignition. He flips on the windshield wipers. He slips the car into drive. We leave on a short journey from the police station toward the university, where Ferensky told Ryan he got rid of the knife. At the time, Ferensky is in the back of the police cruiser, handcuffed and under arrest. Ryan is driving his partner in the back seat with the rape suspect. So he's in the back seat, you've charged him with robbery, you've charged him with sexual assault. What's his demeanor like? Pathetic, actually. He was certainly not the same uh, person who was telling me in the initial interview how many times I have to tell you I didn't commit a sexual assault. Now he's kind of slumped in the back of the car. He's a tiny person to begin with. I would say he's 5'3", uh, 5'4", five, five slumped in the corner. He looked like his world was just ended and he just sat there breathing heavy and he would just direct us to the exact sewer where he claims to have dumped the knife that he used. But he's lying. He was lying but at the time he didn't think in my view that we would go to such extents to look for that knife. I believe he confessed to the, uh, ro the robbery because he knew there was videotape. He confessed to the sex assault based on my interview with him but he wasn't going to give up that evidence that quickly. So it was a big fat lie as to where he dumped the knife and I think he underestimated our investigation. Underestimated perhaps just how scared women on campus were of this man and how badly investigators wanted to get the rapist behind bars. That meant gathering every piece of evidence against him. In the back of the cruiser, Fremsky was beginning to realize these cops meant business. He didn't think that we were going to find the knife. I'll, I'll tell you this, sure. I'll tell you where the, where, where the knife went. You're not going to go find it. So the look in his face too, I remember the look in his face as we're driving towards the library uh, near the sewer where he, the, the library I should say, where the sewer was where he claimed to have dumped it. As we were getting closer, he was shrinking more and more in his chair and his face was turning pale because think, thinking back on it now, he clearly knew that the knife wasn't there and now he's realizing oh my god they're bringing me to where that knife is are they going to look for it are they actually going to look for it and you go to great lengths to try and find it oh my gosh yes certainly do the city of toronto have got a great uh, dedicated team that will do that for us on a dime so we arranged to have a, a, a team come out from the city of toronto with uh the toronto police forensic services of course and when that sewer was pointed out to us, we had two uniform cars following us, by the way. One in the front, one in the back. We got a prisoner in the car just to be safe. You, 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 you do that. Well, one of those cars then sealed that sewer as a crime scene. And we had it uh, attended to ASAP. And 
I got word back within three, four hours saying we found a lot of stuff in that sewer, but uh, there was no knife. But they, they, they drained them, right? They drained the sewer. Yeah, they drain all the water out of the sewer and everything that's been dumped in that sewer gets sucked up with all that uh, water and then it's somebody's job to go through it all. That's not a nice job, is it? No, it's not a nice job at all. No. The 18-year-old who lived a few streets over from the York University campus was now facing serious charges. Toronto police held a news conference to announce they had a suspect in custody. What happened was um, on... Uh Wednesday, we got a tip on the uh, Sexual Assault Task Force hotline, and uh, we sent several MERT officers to see if they could identify this person and, and bring him in. In fact, that's exactly what happened. Um, they contacted him, and, and he came to uh, 31 Division, uh, where he was investigated and has now been subsequently charged. I was assigned that day to cover Faremsky's house, where he lived with his mother, the mom who recognized her son on the security video who heard the rapist would escape on a mountain bike. At the suspect's home today, just steps from the university campus, officers armed with a search warrant removed two bicycles and several boxes filled with items from the house. And in one of those boxes, that 10-inch knife and the clothes Framsky was wearing during the attack on the 22-year-old. He took the knife, the very large knife, the jacket that he was wearing with the distinctive marks on it, uh, and the clothing that he wore that night, and he put it in a bag, and he secreted it underneath the shower in his mother's basement. That's where he said it was. Would you have found that? No, would not have found that. It was that huge knife, Ryan says, that allowed the diminutive Ferensky to overpower the young woman. At the time, you do what you need to do to survive. Some might choose to fight, some may choose to scream, some might choose to just get this over with and just don't kill me. This particular survivor phoned me uh, a third time uh, after the three-hour interview, and she said to me, by the way, I could have pounded this guy if I wanted to, um, but he had a knife. He had a big knife, and that big knife made him such a threat that she was just hoping to get out of that situation alive and thankfully she did. Ryan would now build his case against the 18-year-old while the 22-year-old victim would have to prepare to take the witness stand. A harrowing experience for sexual assault victims. The detective recalls the night of the rape when the brave student came in to be interviewed at the police station. It rings truth when somebody is describing one of the most horrific things they've ever gone through and what they're telling you is I could hear his chains clanking together on his neck as he was assaulting me. I could hear the, the uh, trees rustling, the leaves falling off the trees as he was on top of me. I could smell uh, the odor of uh, alcohol or smoke on his breath, a certain tattoo or in this case the uh, handle of the knife was digging, was poking in my side as he was assaulting me. They all say, man, this is 100% true because what sexual assault survivors do is they become the best witnesses. And although somebody is, is doing such a horrible act to them, they are watching. They're watching everything. They're not watching you as the suspect. They are watching everything around them and they're describing it all in complete detail. So much so that after this three-hour interview with this uh, woman, um, she phoned me a day later and said he told me that he told her 
he was sorry for what he did and he didn't live in the area. So right away I knew he lived in the area because every criminal who commits such a heinous offense, when they say something, there's meaning for it. He's trying to tell her he doesn't live in the area. Why is he doing that? Because he lives in the area. So I was pretty convinced when we started this project, we had a guy that lived within the vicinity of where this happened. And that, what she described, those sounds, that will haunt her for the rest of her life. Oh my gosh, so the last time I talked to her was probably um, a few years afterwards, and she was doing as good as a sexual assault survivor could do, but you never forget that stuff. I've had many sexual assault survivors say to me, at least with murder, you're dead. I gotta live with this every day. So you imagine if you smell sm cigarettes, if you, if you hear clanging chains or birds chirping, and that's what you were recalling during the assault, how do you get rid of that? It's with you forever. You don't. It's with you forever. We make our way to the courthouse, just a few kilometers from the university where the attack took place. Fremsky would face two counts of robbery, two counts of sexual assault, and one count of sexual assault with a weapon. But in the end, his last victim would be spared from testifying against her assailant. We're at 1000 Finch Avenue West. It's the courthouse, I guess about a year later probably. And he's pleading guilty. He's saving that survivor from having to take the witness stand. Yeah, it wasn't that long after we had gathered all that evidence and charged him that he did plead guilty. And he did prevent or save uh, that survivor for having to recall all of those details once again. So he was given some credit because the courts do that. Our system is designed to save time, to save victims from being re-traumatized. So there is some credit given on an early guilty plea, taking responsibility, and that's what he did. Anything happened at the courthouse? After court, after the guilty plea was entered, I remember the father and his daughter um, hugging in the hallway and crying. And if you have daughters or mothers or sisters, or if you're just a person with a, a, a conscience or a heart, that would never leave you. Just imagine having that act done to your kid and then you can't protect her and all you can know is just hold her and hug her and say, we're gonna move on. Like, I can't even imagine. And you'd like to think it's over, there's some closure, but probably not. No, no such thing as closure when it comes to any uh, really serious criminal offense, especially a sexual assault, because you're, you're around to live it every day. And all of those things that you used, your, your, your senses, your smell, your taste, your, your sound, all of that is still with you. And those memories never go away. Ferensky would serve five years, but just as he's let out of prison, his name surfaces again. Students at York University were just finding out today that the man who had terrorized the campus six years ago, victimizing seven women, is back on the streets, and according to police, a high risk to reoffend. 23 years of age, Ferensky had done his time, but once let out, Toronto police took the unusual step to warn the public. As reported then, documents showed his prison track record was not good. While serving his five-year sentence, Philip Fremsky was let out of prison twice on supervised release, and twice he broke his release conditions. He is a convicted rapist. He committed a sexual assault, and there were several offenses that were committed. The first time was August 2004. Fremsky was transferred to a halfway house, but one year later he was caught loitering around a park frequented by high school students, something he was expressly forbidden from doing. He was released a second time, 
and days later he tried to sneak a prostitute into the halfway house. Once again, he was sent back to prison until his release Tuesday. Once again, a cloud of fear descended over the York University campus. The man who had terrorized women six years earlier was out of prison. Scared, knowing that it's an open campus and anybody can come here, knowing that he has a history here. I usually have late classes here, so it's kind of scary to know that, you know, it might happen again. So he does his time, he gets out, gets sent to a halfway house, but the police are concerned that he's dangerous and that he might do this again. Darn right they were because he was uh, released into a halfway house and it wasn't too far from another educational institution. And there was concern that you're putting this guy right back into where we just took him out of. So uh, common sense, it, was, it, it, it got the attention of a lot of people, me included, and it was one of those head scratchers as to of all the places to put him, why would you put him there? But in the end, his name didn't show up again. His name has not showed up since. I have uh, heard nothing about him since the time we arrested him and charged him. And uh, who knows what he's doing today. Faremsky was put under what is called an 810 order, which forced him to check in regularly with police and stay clear of places like university campuses or face going back to prison. I'm Austin Delaney. Thanks for listening.